Hello, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of The Angry Officer. Uh, today, we've got, uh, I've got another special guest here today. Um, my, one of my other brothers, <clears throat> as you know, I've got to, four, well, there's four of us total who are right, police officers. Um, so uh, today, I've got my brother here with me, uh, my younger brother. His name is Brian. And so we'll call him Deputy Brian for today. He's, he works for a, a local sheriff's department. Um, and so he's got a little bit different, he, he t took a little different career path than some of us. So, hey, Brian, how's it going? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me, Steve. Yeah, you bet. You nervous? Yeah, a little bit. He's a little scared, but that's all right. He'll get over it. A little timid. He's a little timid. Yeah, right. No one's ever said that about Brian before. <laughs> so, Brian, why don't you just tell us a little bit first how you're about your career? Just, uh, you know, what have you done? What, what's your... Sure. So... Like my older brothers, I started my career later in life. Uh, I was in my 30s when I started my career. Uh, I already had two kids, married for several years. Um, and then I started my career in a, a big city or a bigger city. Uh, and I started in corrections. So I started in corrections, moved to a, a smaller uh, location, but I remained in corrections. Uh, corrections meaning I worked in the uh, jail. Uh, I did that for several years, um, and then I moved into what we call the, the booking or the intake, um, where uh, the arresting officer brings the arrestees, uh, and I did that for about another five years, and now I'm currently in the transportation division. Uh, I'm a supervisor over... Uh, courts and over extraditions. So we we go pick up people from other states on warrants. Uh, we travel throughout the state. Uh, we take people to medical appointments. We anything that uh, an inmate that's incarcerated um, has to go to, we transport them. And then anyone that has a warrant we go pick up. It, so I've done that for eight years now or seven years now, but I've been on the county SWAT team for 11 years. Uh, and in the SWAT team, I was part of the entry. SWAT or not, right? Yeah, SWAT or not. SWAT or not. Who do officers call when they need help? The SWAT team. <laughs> uh, I've done that for 11 years now. Uh, and my current position over that, I started it as just an entry guy. Uh, and my current position now on the, the SWAT team is I'm, I'm the lead sniper. So I've been doing that for two years. Cool. So how, so total in law enforcement now, where are you at? 15 years. 15. Okay. So all, all, all four of us will retire within a year and a half of each other. I think. I think it was like three. I think Jim three? has 17. So yeah, he's, he's, yeah, he's. I don't think he's quite there yet, but he's getting close. Anyway, yeah, so we'll all, we all started late in life. We will all retire kind of around the same time. So, um, and I'd say our, our experiences are a little bit different. My oldest brother has 10 years in age difference between <clears throat> him and I, and you're yeah. right in the middle. Yep. Um, so let's. Uh, so when you say extradition, you know, you're when you're bringing a, a prisoner in from somewhere else, they're they're extraditing them here to face charges. 
you you're not you said in state but you don't you go out of state too right yes. occasionally to pick so somebody up we we've been coast to coast uh, we're we fly armed on airplanes uh, bit of a hassle kind of a, a hoops you got to jump through or what no you know that with i guess technology nowadays uh communication has gotten a lot better with the federal government as far as that goes so we are actually uh made things a lot easier so we're uh, no, it's, it's not as hard as you would expect. Um, uh, we work pretty closely with the federal agencies as far as. So as far as carrying on the, carrying your firearms on the uh, airplane, uh, you said you work with uh, closely with the federal agencies. Yeah, we work closely with TSA. Uh, and of course we got to, we got to get certified to fly armed. Um, and then go through a class. Uh, once we go through the class, then it's just a matter of notifying the airports and the TSA and the different agencies on who we're taking, who we're picking up and identify ourselves. So when you, if you have a prisoner on the plane, do you, uh, are they cuffed? Like, do you always keep them cuffed or how, how do you do that? So yeah, they will be uh, belly chained and handcuffed. Okay. And we have a outfit that it more or less looks like a hoodie in which we cut out the uh, the belly side so their hands are inside the hoodie so it's not you're trying to make it not quite so obvious right sure. yeah okay usually if there's two people that are dressed really nicely and one person that's not dressed so nicely <laughs> it's a clue board, they board the plane first and they sit in the very back then you know yeah yeah that's a clue we call that a clue um all right so i guess a couple things that i just um, we've, we've worked, uh, this is just a little disclaimer. I'm going to throw this out there before I, <laughs> before I bring up our next subject, which Brian has no idea, by the way. So I'm totally going to blindside him here in a second. Nice. As if I'm not nervous enough, right? <clears throat> yeah, that's Thanks. all right. It's a good way to learn. Right. Um, so we've all, when I say we, I'm talking to my brothers. We've all, we've pretty much worked together most of our lives. So you have to understand something when, when I talk about some of this stuff. We're brothers. We fight. The good thing is, we're pretty much good. I don't know what minute or two after, maybe five. If it's a bad fight, it might take us five minutes, right? Then we're good. Next day. Nick, oh, Brian's a grudge holder, so it takes him the next day. Me, I'm good though. <laughs> so just a funny little thing that I'm going to bring up, and uh, this was this was. I think I had either just became a policeman or I was going through the academy. I don't remember. But Brian, um, I had moved away from our hometown. I still had a home up there. And Brian had a little, a little, uh, should we call it an incident? At, at my house where my aunt, who happened to live across the street from me, called me up one day. I was 300 miles away from home. And she says, hey, uh, Steve, uh, Two people that I didn't recognize. I didn't really see the first one, but the second one just went into your home. They're driving a car that I don't recognize. Um, like, are they supposed to be there? And, I, and I'm like, well, you know. And Brian at the time just lived up the street from me. So anyway, long story short, I didn't know who it was. I asked, you know, the car didn't make, the description of the car didn't fit anything. or You know, so I said, well, 
I'm 300 miles away. Nothing I can do. Call the police. You remember? You know? You know where I'm going with this, Brad? Right? Sure. I, I remember. The, <laughs> I remember the incident very well. Uh, very vivid. <laughs> so the police showed up at the house, and Brian had gone there with a friend of his, who my aunt did not recognize, driving his car, the the friend's car, and police apparently announced. Okay, so <laughs> a little backstory to this whole story. Um, Steve had borrowed my uh, the airless spray gun, right? And uh, he told me, gave me the key. I had a key to the house. It's in his basement. So I went to the house as normal as can be. I, I lived with my brother for about six months. So yeah, yeah. I mean, Mike. You know, we're all like, he can come into my house anytime. Like, it's not like he needs permission. So you know, we're that we're we're close. So anyway. So me and my friend, we, we went there to grab the uh, the paint gun, and uh, Steve didn't clean it beforehand. Oh, my so, goodness. So I actually had to clean the gun before we removed the gun. Well, little, you, little brothers, they're it, babies. If you've heard an airless before, they're loud. You know, the yeah, 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 as I'm cycling. How'd paint. that go again, Bray? Yeah, 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 oh, Okay, yeah, gotcha. As I'm cycling this paint through this paint gun. Well, lo and behold... Uh, somebody called the cops and I, I heard footsteps upstairs and bear in mind, I knew the neighbors, my aunt lived across the street. So I thought, well, maybe my aunt had come to, to visit or to see us. Well, I, I was in the basement. I peeked my head up the stairs and I have a rifle pointed at my face. Um, of course your, your initial instincts is put your hands up, right? Like, you know, uh, anyway, tried to explain, um, obviously they're doing an investigation. I, I, I take about two more steps and I have three more rifles pointed at me. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to follow their directions, but yet explain himself, explain my innocence here, you know, mm -hmm. um, and they didn't want anything of it. My, my friend who is a, a much bigger guy than me is still downstairs circling the paint through the paint gun. So he's still clueless about what's going on. I'm now, uh, at this point, I'm now up against the wall, being cuffed, placed on the ground, uh, and they're getting ready to go down and get my friend. Uh, he, he stops the, the air gun, the, the, the paint gun, and he comes up to see where I went and he turns the corner to go up the stairs and he's confronted by several officers. And, uh, what were they, what kind of guns were they carrying? They were a rifle. <laughs> AR-15? M4s. Okay. Did any, did, did anybody poop their pants? Uh, no one actually crapped themselves. Oh, uh, good. Which was good. Uh, I had a, a nervous shake in my leg that probably lasted about two weeks. Oh, two weeks, whatever. I've been hearing about this story for 15 years. Uh, they couldn't get the cusser on my friend because he's so big. So it took two or three of them on the ground to put the cuffs on. And then they uh, slid me to the front door. And Steve had a, a glass screen door. And my aunt's on the sidewalk. <laughs> and I'm looking at her, laying on my belly, cuffed behind my back, asking her, hey, are you going to say some? Or <laughs> Anyway, when the officers finished their search of the house, uh, they finally 
at that time they could do their investigation and talk to us. Uh, and they released you. Everything was good. They released me at first. You know, they had to <laughs> do their investigation. I actually had the key of the house in my pocket. The family photo, which I was in, was right above my head. So, um, yeah, eventually they released me. And, yeah, I was I was uh, extremely upset. I was... Uh, I was angry. I was, I thought it was unnecessary. Um, in fact, Steve was at, staying at my house, uh, not too long after that. And we had a big argument at my house over this. Well, I, I, we remember that a little bit differently because that's what I was going to bring up next. My, my recollection of that argument was we were actually driving up the street going to our other brother's house and Brian was being a little critical of the police and how they did their, you know, they were just, I don't know, they were mean and whatever. And, uh, and of course my perspective had changed at that point because I had gone through the academy. I, I don't remember. I think I maybe was even working now. And so, I mean, as a policeman, so my perspective had already changed. I'd already made that transition from a civilian and not kind of understanding how and why we do things to, yeah, now I get it. You know, you, you're not going to, you're not going to, you've got to, you've got to contain the situation because they don't know who Brian is and they don't know if Brian is there to burglarize my house, which is a, is a second degree felony, by the way. So it's a serious crime if that's what was happening. They don't know. So their first priority is, you know, contain him, contain, and then start asking, then let him explain what are you doing here? So anyway, so we got a big old, we got in a big old argument about this. I think we had, let's be honest, I think we had several arguments over this. Well, maybe, maybe, yeah. So here we go. Now, Brian, years later, Brian's been on the SWAT team for some time. How many entries have you made into a house, Brian? Oh, I don't know. I, I, Probably more than you can remember. Yeah. And so... Do you have a different perspective on it now? Well, of course. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, it was funny because the agency that came in to, uh, that put me in cuffs, that made entry that day, um, that's the agency I started working for. Well, they still let you work there? Right. So I actually, <laughs> I pulled the report and read the report and yeah, so it, it, it definitely was a different perspective. I mean, uh, Nobody likes to have a firearm pointed at them. Um, nobody likes to be cuffed. Nobody wants to be, uh, I guess, quieted. You know, here for me, it was it was a simple explanation of, you know, I was allowed to be there. I was just picking something up that was mine, um, or was there for me to use. It it was an easy explanation, but for them their life's threatened and i get that now like they don't know what they're going into well, yeah, that's they don't the thing. know the house they don't know complete complete unknown for them right so right. and it was a, a absolute known for me i knew right. i had done nothing wrong right um, and now you know obviously the whole situation maybe took 20 minutes but for me it was an hour and for me it was you know uh, at the time I felt a lot more than what needed to be done. I thought, man, maybe this could have been done. Maybe this could have been done where I'm at now. I look back and I think 
they didn't have time to do that. You know, they had to secure a premise. Uh, they had to, they had to act. Um, and had, had I not been the noise and whatnot, who knows, maybe it would have been slightly different. Yeah. Um, Anyway, I just think that's funny, um, but it's but it's just the like I said, the perspective the perspective just changes drastically once you're in the once you're on the other side of that. But the nice thing about that, and I think this goes along with us being older as well, when we got into law enforcement, is you absolutely know what it feels like on the other side now, right? Like you know what it feels like to have a gun pointed at you and to have several police officers yelling at you and spouting out orders. And so you do have that perspective, which I think is good. Um, you know, you still, you've got to do what you got to do when you're, when you're making entry into a home and you, you know, the number one priority is your safety and your team's safety. So, or, or innocence safety, right? Like if there's somebody innocent in that house, but so I want to move on to something else. that's kind of been a big thing in the news and he is being blindsided again, just so you know, we really haven't talked about any of this I prior have a to story for you guys when this is all said and done. Oh too, gosh. So. All right. I don't know what he's talking about. Yeah. We'll see if we have time for that. But anyways, um, so one of the things that we're talking about a lot in the news, obviously, obviously there's, um, there's police reform that's constantly being talked about in the news, right? We've got to police reform, criminal justice reform, whatever. And one of the subjects is the service of warrants or, or I guess more specifically, no-knock warrants. So you're on the SWAT team. I'm assuming that you serve a lot of warrants or yours mostly, I mean, do you always have a warrant or most of the time or what, when you guys are going into a house or is it? Well, uh, a pre-planned <laughs> Uh, entry would be a warrant service, uh, uh, not pre-planned, meaning uh, uh, active incidents. So like right. the incident on the interstate where the gentleman was holding his kids hostage, um, had a gun to his head. There wasn't a warrant in that situation. That was a, an active acting. Sure. There was exigent circumstances existed there. So that um, anyway, and, and so that... Uh, you know, we obviously, if you don't have time to get a warrant or if it's somebody's life is, you know, it's somebody's life or whatever, there's exigent circumstances out there that exist that kind of, I don't want to say gets around the fourth amendment because we, we're not, we're not looking to get around the fourth amendment. And I'm just going to speak for Brian here. Cause I know, I know him well enough. Me and Brian both love the constitution and the bill of rights. So the last thing that either one of us, right, right. The last thing either one of us ever want to do is is violate that. But sometimes it's not reasonable to stop, write a warrant, produce the probable cause, swear to, you know, swear to an affidavit in front of the judge because somebody's life's on the line. So that's an exigent circumstance. And if we have time, Brian maybe could tell you what that story was. But um, so I, but, but getting back to the no knock warrant. So you pretty much have two warrants that we would serve and that's a no knock and a knock and talk. And right now in the news, and this is all kind of stemming from Brianna Taylor, but um, a lot of the agencies around, or I shouldn't say the agencies, I'm sure it's not the agencies, it's the, it's the legislature around, they're trying to get rid of no-knock warrants. And I don't know how much you've looked into the Brianna Taylor or how much you know about the Brianna Taylor case, um, but... I have some. Yeah. Um, in my opinion... 
you know, in that case, they had a no-knock warrant, and which, by the way, you have to ask for, and there has to be a reason for a no-knock warrant. Yes, there right? has to be history of violence, and there has to be a known weapon. Right, and what's the point of a no-knock warrant? It's for our safety. Right. Uh, you want the element of surprise, right? I think you could look at the Florida situation with the FBI, uh, the, the individual that shot through the door in that incident. That just happened, what was that, two weeks ago? Yeah. That was through a camera that he shot those FBI. So, we're yeah, we're trying to, our safety in not allowing them to know that we're coming. So, not, so they're not preparing for it. Sure. Element of surprise. So, in the Breonna Tater case, my understanding is that they had a no-knock warrant. However, for whatever reason, which which means, by the way, that they had, if if things were done on the up and up, which I'm assuming they were, um, that means that they had information that was presented to the judge. And we're not talking just a hunch. We're talking probable cause that they submitted to the judge that said, hey, this is a dangerous situation. We may need a no-knock warrant for this um, for our safety. And if, and if they had enough probable cause to support that, the judge clearly signed off on that. Now, for whatever reason, they decided to knock and announce, which... As we know, when the officers made entry after announcing, they took a round. They were confronted with gunfire. Yes. They were confronted with gunfire. We returned fire. Unfortunately, Brianna Taylor Correct. deceased. You know, she ended up taking gunfire and was deceased. So I guess what I'm getting at is, in my opinion, I think it's a huge mistake where we're where we're trying to blame. I don't know what no knock has to do with that particular case, honestly. Um, because had they done a no-knock like they supposedly had, maybe we wouldn't even be having this conversation. Maybe they would have taken that by surprise to the point where um, he wouldn't have had a chance to grab his gun to and to, uh, you know, fire onto the police. I, so I, I would say that as far as legislation goes, it's crazy to take away tools that could help save both the officer's lives and the, the, the person that we're trying to... Um, arrest or make the arrest. Right. Um, if, if we can do those things, if we can use entry points other than the front door, if we can use entry points that maybe they're not suspecting, and if we can use the element of surprise, um, we try to do this not just at homes, but we try to do this when people are in cars. We try to do this uh, whenever they're not expecting it because that's their safety and it's our safety. So let me just ask you this then, and, we'll, and we're going to, we'll move on a little bit, but um, so in your opinion, as a SWAT, you know, person, and I know that you're a sniper now, so that means you're really not probably making a lot of entries anymore, but you've made plenty in the past. So in your opinion, does that jeopardize the safety of those SWAT teams or those, not just SWAT, because it's not just SWAT who serves those, um, I, you know, I've, I've served as well. So um, does that jeopardize the safety of those officers if we take away our ability to obtain a no-knock warrant? Absolutely. I think okay. any time that we're given the, the – whoever's making the entry, whether it's SWAT team or just the patrol, they're making an entry into, just the a, patrol. into an unknown <laughs> situation. Kidding. So they're going into an unknown where the person we're trying to make the arrest has the known. Right. So – the advantage, if you were to say, goes to them if we're telling them we're coming in. Uh, yeah. If you look at a lot of entry 
uh, where officers have been shot or killed, a lot of those have been because uh, we gave them prior notice that we were coming. So they were able to prepare, they were able to put weapons in strategic positions as to when we came in, they knew where they were going to shoot versus where we had no idea where they were at. Right. And then we have to account for every round uh, where they can just shoot through uh, walls and they're not, they're not accountable for that or right. to the point where we're accountable. For and one, one thing that people need to understand and, and uh, I, you know, I, I always try and um, emphasize this in my law enforcement class when I'm teaching. But one thing people need to understand is as police officers, we are working from a, a mostly defensive position. Um, whereas the military, as an example, would be an offensive. So military can lay down suppressive fire. They can, you know, they can burst into a house and lay down fire. They can do those things because their rules of engagement are different, but they are also more, they can be offensive when they need to be. And that's pretty rare for us. Um, not saying that we can't do that in some situations, but like Brian said, we have to account for every single round that comes out of our gun. So if we're going to go in and lay suppressive fire, we better know where those rounds are going, right? We better be putting those rounds in a wall that will, will contain, or those rounds won't go through that wall. And it's just not something that we do that often. We mostly are, defensive in other words they make the first move we then react to it as far as like gunfire and things like that and uh well even to go a step further to acquire a warrant they had to have done something so once again we're just not serving warrants on people that don't have a history of violence or have history of uh, uh, a weapon in other words also to add to that most of these individuals that I serve warrants on aren't allowed to have weapons. Um, they have the restricted person. They're a restricted person. And so they've already violated the law, which is why we're there. And then they violated other laws for having weapons, which is why it escalates to a SWAT team versus just a, a paper service. Right. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, it's, um, you know, they're, they're, they're constantly talking about demilitarizing the police as well. And I don't, we're not going to get too much into this, but just for the sake of time, but, um, and it kind of goes along with the no knock warrants, you know, the, the, the armored vehicles, you guys have an arm, armored vehicle. I'm assuming that you use occasionally. Yes. We Does do. it have a big old 50 cal gun mounted to the top? No. Oh, okay. No, it, the armored vehicle <laughs> is strictly for the safety of the officer. That's right. So it's to take rounds, so but it, the officers aren't taking the round. But it looks really mean and scary, right? Right. It has no it has no way of hurting somebody other than if they were to run them over, I suppose. <laughs> right, which yeah. Um yeah, so I mean, but so I guess the reason I mentioned that is, you know, we we need to not be fooled um when when they come out and say that they need to demilitarize us. Those tools are for our safety and again, the more of those things they take away, the more it puts us in jeopardy. Um, and I think if you were to actually do the research on the weapons in which we use, it actually, they're more accurate. They're, they're more accountable for where we're going. Um, they might look scary. An M4, it looks scary. But I'd rather have a team of people with M4s that they're going to be able to put 
their rounds into a circle of four inches versus a bunch of people or a team carrying a handgun in which they're not as accurate. And then also the bullets that they're designed to fragment on impact. So um, the, the reason that's important is because we don't want to over penetrate. If we over penetrate the bullets or if our rounds are going through walls or through people or whatever, then that means they're traveling through and we have to be accountable for that. So we need to know. So anyway, so yeah, they're, they're made to not over penetrate, not go through those things as much. And so those are all, you know, um, I guess, I guess safety measures, if you sure. will. Sure. There's, there's safety measures for us and for them. Yeah. Um, I don't know an officer that wants to hurt anybody. We're, we're there to, right. to save and help the community. These are individuals that are not, uh, they're, they're not positive to society. They're not, uh, they're not helping. And there there's, you know, then we have the situations of family members that are hurting other family members. And yeah, uh, so these are situations that have to be resolved, but I don't know an officer that wants to hurt anybody. Right. And, and, and it's just, impo it's important to, um, it's important to keep in mind that, Really, in most cases, you know, it's it's the suspect. They're the ones that determine the amount of force that we use. We we use the amount of force necessary to affect that arrest. So, if they're resisting, the more they resist, the more force we are we are really um, forced to use. So it's that's important to keep in mind too. We're going to use the least amount of force necessary. For our safety and then to affect that arrest so and i'll go as far as saying 99 percent of the homes that i enter there is such a little bit of force because of the surprise of us coming in they're not able to uh i guess to get to a situation that greater force would have to be right. used so we've minimized the force because of the element of surprise. Right. And the, and the way you enter. And sometimes you have to be loud. And sometimes, you know, well, not sometimes. You're going to. You're going to enter. You're going to loud. It's going to be chaotic. Right. And But part of that, you know, you might throw a flashbang first. But part of that is, again, we want to take them we're, we're by surprise. We're trying to confuse the individual we're trying to arrest and give them other stimulus to think about versus uh, the, uh, the idea of... Uh, fighting back or grabbing something else. So it's for our safety and it's for their safety. Right. Anyway, so, all right, so let's move on. I want to kind of go on to another subject. So um, as you talked, you were, you were in your thirties when you became a plot of a, a, a police officer. So um, what, uh, first of all, how has it been compared to how you thought it would be? What you anticipated, I should say, what you anticipated the job would be like, is it anything like that? <laughs> no, I, I don't think if that the makes... job is anything like what I envisioned off of TV or what I'd known as cops. Uh, no, my, it, it's completely different. Um, I, I would say I deal with, bear in mind, I'm in the, the uh, correction side. So I, I work for most of my career, I've worked out of jail and I've dealt with, the same individuals uh, over and over again. Um, and most of the individuals I deal with, uh, there's drugs or alcohol involved. Uh, oh yeah. So um, as a, 
when I was in booking, I was dealing with the same people that would get drunk or get high and then they'd commit a crime. They'd get arrested. I, I would separate them, get them sober, and then we'd move them to the back. Um, and these were the same individuals I dealt with over and over and over again. Um, I, but in the same aspect, it makes it hard because um, you become kind of hardened to these individuals. Like um, you, you start losing the the sympathy. The you start, uh, yeah. You just become cynical. Like it's their fault. They did this. You know, which, they, which it they, is, but they can change this, right. and, and they choose not to in our eyes because when when they come to us, they're 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 high. They're drunk, um, and then when they leave us, they're sober. They're communicating. They're, I mean, we'll house them for months on end, and they're not using drugs. And it's kind of sad because when they come to us, they're a certain individual, and when they leave us, they're a certain individual, and they're not the same individual. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I know there's a guy. So, and we work in the same. We work in the same area, even though we work for different agencies, and we kind of have worked kind of on. I don't. I don't want to say opposite ends, but we're on different ends. Um, I know there was a guy in town that we worked with, or that I would arrest fairly regularly, and I would take him into you. And I know that after you, you know, he was a drinker. So every time I arrested him, he was he was drunk and he fought. Every single time he fought and he was, he was just, I don't know how to even explain it. He was foul. He was just, uh, just not a nice guy when he was drunk. But I remember you saying, oh yeah, so-and-so was, you know, was been in here for about a month or whatever. Even after he sobered up after a few days, you'd be like, he's a pretty nice guy. Like he's a pretty decent guy when he's not drinking. We're talking about Tony. Uh, yeah. Say it last name, obviously, but uh, Tony was... He was mean and angry and, you know, he felt like the world was against him when he was drunk and he did. He fought with us. He fought with the arresting agency more often than not. And then we could step in and say, you know, hey, Tony. Um, and he would recognize us and his he would change us slightly. I think you experienced that. Oh, yeah. I, I think you kind of got upset. Like, why does he want to fight with me, but not with or with well. you and not with me? And. Yeah, and I, and I understand that. I mean, usually, usually when when we dealt with him, it was obviously he was three sheets to the wind most of the time. So I did I did experience him a few times though when he was sober, and and uh, we actually had decent conversation, and he was decent. You know, he was very he was I would say even more than just cordial. Like he was a pretty decent, nice guy. We um, we uh, we find this a lot, like. So the arresting officers spend 15, I don't know, maybe an hour most with these individuals where I'll spend days, months with these individuals. And, you know, they are, they'll, they'll see me. I run into them everywhere. We're in a small community and they're always excited to say hi and let us know how they're doing. Um, and it's, it's good to see when they're doing well. Um, Going back to Tony, he's doing really well right now. He's, you know, he's sober. He's a volunteer. And, 
you know, those are the stories that we like to hear. And those are the stories that makes the job rewarding. Yeah. And I think I, you know, I tell people this all the time, like, like, like we're, we're, we want them to, we want them to change. We want them to, to be better. We want them to do better. We live in the same community as these individuals. We have kids in these communities. Obviously we want them to become good, productive members of our community. So we're not, we're not like, you know, we're, we're not happy to see them over and over again and, and the recidivism and them coming back and, you know, always coming back into jail or us always having to arrest them. That's not what we want. We want them to, so it, so, you know, to, to do better or whatever, but so it's nice to hear that. It's nice to hear that uh, you get somebody like that who we dealt with so often um, that's actually kind of turned it around, at least for now. Hopefully he can continue to do that. Right. I would say we kind of deal with, I, I, not to make it simple, but we kind of deal with uh, in the jail two different types of people. We, we deal with those that come in, they're like, you know, I made a mistake, I shouldn't have done this, you know, I, I did this wrong. And they recognize the error and where they went wrong. And then we have those that come in and it's somebody else's fault. This is the reason why I'm doing this. This is, and it's their every excuse in the book. And we see those people all the time. We see them over and right. over again where the individual that comes in is like, man, I just had too much to drink. I shouldn't have been driving. I never see them again. They, 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 they own it and they don't make that mistake again. Um, or, and then it's just the opposite, the individual that it's somebody else's fault. And I think a lot of times it takes uh, these individuals that come in over and over again to look at themselves and say, is this the individual I want to be? Do I want to make the change? Because nobody's going to make a change for them. Um, and that's usually where they get their help is when they finally realize I got to do this. Right. Unfortunately, it seems like it's more, least, least from my perspective, it feels like the ones that are the ones that are accountable for their actions, the ones that say, dang it, I just I made a mistake. Like, I, you know, now I've just got to pay my fine. I got to do my my time and be done with it, you know, move on. But it was nobody else's fault but my own. Like, they're not mad at the police they're not mad at you. They're they're taking accountability. It seems like those are, I don't know, few and far between. Maybe that's the maybe that's the cynical side of me, but that's the way it seems. Um is I wish there were more. If if more people were accountable for their own actions, we definitely would be. Once again, I would say less that busy. less than five percent of the population keeps us busy. Uh, it's those same individuals over and over again. There's a greater number of population that makes mistakes. Like we're all right. capable of making mistakes. I, I know I've made plenty of mistakes in my life, right? Uh, but most of the population is going to stand up and say, I recognize I made this mistake. I'm not going to make this mistake again. And they're better for it. Whereas, you know, that small percentage, that 5% that just keeps on blaming the society or blaming the world for their, their decisions. They're the ones that keep us busy more often. Yeah, the vic- they they've got the victim mentality for sure. They they see themselves as a victim, which is unfortunate, but I mean, we all have an excuse. I've said that before. We've all had an excuse. We've all had bad things happen. We've all had, you know, but it's how you choose to to see those 
you know, things and how you choose to, um, I guess, deal with them and learn from them is what makes the difference. So, um, all right. Yeah, go ahead. I, I believe everybody has a demon. Everybody has things that they're battling. I don't think there's an individual that doesn't have something that they're trying to make themselves better or something that keeps on. But if, if you're not facing it and you don't realize that, recognize that, that's when you let those demons control you or take over. Right. All right. So, um, so here's the question. Do you regret your decision to become a, or to get into law enforcement? No, I do it again. You would do it again. Now, with that being said, I can't wait to get out. Um, (laughs) No, I, I think it's, it's opened my eyes to the way the world is. Um, I, I see things that I wish I'd never seen, but I think it's made me a better person knowing that those things exist. I think far too often people, um, have no idea what the society or how much evil is in the world and why we need people to be good. And I think that's helped me. Um, you know, I, my career has been slightly different. I, I'm not on patrol, but I've seen people do terrible things. I've seen, you know, I, I've had across the dead body where the husband just shot the wife. You know, I, I've, I've seen those things. I've experienced those things. And I wish I hadn't, but I think it's made me a better person um, knowing that there's stuff that I can do and there's things that other people can do to make this world a better place. And I'll I'll tell you what's been the hardest thing about being in law enforcement, sorry, is family. Yeah. Um, I get called out to, you know, uh, an active shooter you know, someone's just shot their, their family member and I got to respond and I hug my wife, my kids and they don't, sorry, they don't understand other than I got to go help save somebody or try to help somebody, but they're left there not knowing you know, is dad coming home? Is, you know, what state is dad going to come home in? I think that's been the hardest thing about law enforcement is watching my my wife, my kids. You know, my kids, my kids are active in school, but I'm not allowed to, or I don't allow them to post their last name I'm afraid of somebody that may want um, vengeance on me. So I don't want them to be a victim for my decisions so they don't get recognized like in the newspaper or we have to we try to protect them the best we can and that's probably been the hardest part yeah i i agree and and um you know with the current state of things too you know with the with the uh with the way the media portrays the public and um, you know, those types of things for me, and you can tell me, you know, what you think about this, but for me, just having, just having so many people close to me in my life that are, that are law enforcement, not myself, but my brothers, cousin, you know, I've had 
all these people, not to mention all the great people that I've learned or that I've, sorry, that I've met and, and had, have now relationships with that are in law enforcement. When I see all the awful things that they say about police, um, that's just not true. It just makes it that much harder for me to deal with, you know, um, knowing, knowing the sacrifice that these men and women are making. And then, and then just to see people, I mean, so to speak, you know, just spit in their face, kind of, it's a gut punch to me anyway. Like it really, it really bothers me and it, and I have a hard time with it. And, uh, well, it's, it's, you know, it's easier for me to deal with it when it's happening to me, but when it happens right. to my family or that's when it's like really tough. Like you can call me whatever you want. I right. called every name but, of the book. And we kind of expect that, right? Like, right. I mean, we know that's going to happen to us. Right. But it's when it happens to our family and those that we care about, that's where it's hard. Right. That's where my decisions uh, and my choice for a career, you know, that's where it's, you know, for me, I, I like being a cop. I like doing what I do, but it's when I look at my family, that's where it's hard. Right. Um, so you would do it again. No regrets, but you're done in 20. I'm done in 20. <laughs> I think all of us are done brothers wise. I think we're all done in 20. Um, what if your uh, what if your one of your children wanted to be a policeman? Well, I have my youngest that is <laughs> he, he, he loves, loves police. police. <laughs> I like everything about his <laughs> his life is police. He loves police. Um, yeah, you know, I would probably tell him to be a firefighter. Like, uh, <laughs> oh my goodness, we're never going to hear the end of that one. Um, no, it, 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 but it's, it's true, kind it, of. It, I it's mean, a hard career. Like it's. It's hard. Like it's hard on my marriage. It's hard on my kids. It's hard, you know, um, it's hard on the individual, even, even though some of us don't want to admit that. And some people deal with things different. We all deal with things differently, but we all deal with things. That's the key. And so, you know, I've learned to talk, you know, talking helps. Like I, I try to tell, you know, my wife, every experience I have, um, even the ones she doesn't want to hear because it, helps me yeah but sometimes it's nice to have brothers that are that one of the things that i've found too is um you can talk to somebody and this includes this includes our wives but they can't relate like like they don't know what it's like and so at least for me sometimes it's nice to be able to talk to which is, I guess, good to have brothers because, you know, you're close, but it's nice to sometimes be able to say, hey, this is what I experienced. And you know that the person you're talking to completely understands because they've been in that exact same or not the exact, but, you know, very, very similar situations. So, um, well, I think that's why officers are close to other officers. Yeah. Um, there's a level of trust there and there's a level of understanding, you know, when, when I'm going to a house and I have to walk across a body or I have to, you know, uh, carry a child that was just being held hostage. Nobody can explain that other than the guy that's next to me. And nobody knows what I feel like. I think that's why military is so close to each other. You know, they, they've gone through the depth of hell and they, they can feel 
the sympathy and the empathy for each other. Yeah, definitely the empathy there. You know, you you know what it's like, and so. Well, um, was there anything else that you want to talk yeah, about? Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> funny story about Steve. You oh, know, great. He blindsided me twice. Um, before I became a cop, I, I was actually working for the airline industry. And I, I flew down one night to uh, work with Steve as like a, just a ride along to kind of experiment whether or not I want to do this. Just so everybody knows, at this point, I still have no idea where he's even going with this. No, he has no idea. Um, anyway, so we're driving around and it's like 12 o'clock at night and, and uh, we come to a, a multi-level parking garage and we we get to the top and there's a car up there behold, right <laughs> and uh there's four feet on the dashboard and and steve's like oh my gosh we gotta and i go so so are we gonna like what are we gonna do are we gonna go up there are you gonna call it in are you gonna turn your lights and uh i think steve's response was i'm not sure how to call this in so uh we'll just kind of keep let it go <laughs> well what were they doing well, they're four feet on the dashboard, so I guess the... Well, they were probably just kicking back and sleeping or right. something. I didn't sure want to disturb them. Right. I'm sure that's what it is. But <laughs> he was brand new. It was a funny story. I don't even remember that, but I mean, I vaguely do now that you bring it up, I guess. Right. I think Brian just wanted me to... What He was just hoping we'd go out and... I don't know. What were you hoping? I don't know. Some... I, I, I have no idea. I was brand new. All I know they, is listen, they were probably a married couple who's got five kids at home and they never get time to themselves. And who am I? Who am I, Bry, to disturb those couple, that couple in their time of of Once again, compassion? You were in service of your community. Wait, That's wait. right. I was servicing them. I was making sure I was making sure that I wasn't servicing them. I, I'm gonna <laughs> let me back that up. Let me let me let me push the push on the brakes here. I was making sure that their area around them was safe, yeah, so that they could continue, continue their, their marital right. Um, gotcha. Bonding. There, we'll call that marital bonding. Steve, let me thank you for inviting me, and uh, and and thank you for putting this out there for anyone that doesn't know what law enforcement's like. This has been, I think, a good thing for me to listen to him talk about. And just, I think it's been good for him. So, Yeah, it's fun. I enjoy it. Uh, you know, I'm trying to bring some perspective, but also some entertainment, but also some, I mean, you and I, we, we're both political people. We were very heavily into politics. And, uh, you know, and I, I'm trying to bring some, I don't know, I guess there's a political element too. I know I don't talk about politics a lot, but I will. But uh, anyway, yeah, no, I it's fun. I enjoy it. I'm glad you came on. We'll get we'll have you on again here soon, um, and uh, we'll get some more perspective from different officers and from different family members and those kinds of things going forward. But I appreciate you coming on. That was a pretty mild story, so thanks for that. Um, I was a little I was a little nervous where that was maybe going to go, but I can handle that one. You can always edit it out. Yeah, well, we'll see. Anyway, but uh, thanks again for joining me, joining me, um, and Brian here on the Angry Officer. Um, again, please follow follow me on Instagram. Send me some if you have an idea or something you want to hear or you have a question. 
feel free to send me uh, an email, um, theangryofficer at gmail.com. My Instagram is theangryofficer. And uh, until next time, take care. Peace out. Peace.